when um, the inevitable witch hunt got going in the Department of International Studies at Simon Fraser University, um, this lecture and the constant stream of obscenities were the two things that my students cited as irreplaceable elements of my teaching, my teaching. So, um, to bring you in, let me give you some context for the lecture because it's, it's a bit of a turn. So when I inherited this course, um, the Simon Fraser University School of International Studies was created by a horrible man named John Harris. Um, and what John Harris's real business model was, is to bring in international students and to quote J.R.R. Tolkien, show them the greatness and majesty of the Lords of the West. Um, so this course existed when it was handed over to me by the new department chair who succeeded John Harris named Alec Dawson. And um, it was a white supremacist course. Um, it was based on an insane book written by a man named David Landes. Um, there was a debate in 1948 at Harvard about whether they should continue to have a Department of Geography. And because the people in the Department of Geography all hated each other so deeply, a majority of them voted to disband the department rather than put up with each other for another day. David Landis, being a white supremacist jackhole, was a dissenting vote. And in the early 21st century, he wrote a book called The Wealth and Poverty of Nations, um, which was like, I mean, Thomas Piketty is being a dick when he named his book after Karl Marx's book, Capital. But David Landis was being a total dick when he named his book after Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations because his book is like a batshit crazy screed that is half about the department meeting where he lost the vote in 1948 and half about temperate climates creating civilization. So the original task that I was given was to rescue this course. And it caused me to build the unrecognizable course that you've been taking. It also caused the inevitable um, arrival of the torch-bearing mob. Because uh, eventually Alec Dawson went on leave and John Harris came back and he was just completely disgusted with how I'd taken all the white supremacy out of the program. Um, and uh, we had some times. But the good thing about John Harris was that... Um, he was such 
an 18th century English gentleman that um, he was used to fighting people with passive aggression. And the thing was, like, I was raised, I'm like, I'm the culmination of a 150-year project of Black respectability. So, of course, I can read codes and I can code switch. So I knew this man wanted to murder me the day I met him. And um, I'm very proud that I did make him lose his temper first, that he wrote me a long email at 12.02 a.m. after he ceased to be the head of the department and he realized that he was gone and I wasn't. He still works for the department because there's only one thing worse than working for Simon Fraser University. It's actually retiring and going home to your wife who clearly is better equipped to hate you than any of us were. So, uh, so we, I was handed this course and the original point of the course was to explain, as Tolkien would say, the greatness and majesty of the Lords of the West, to explain why white Europeans and their Creole descendants have ended up on top of this global system and have sat on it for 500 years. And that's a real fucking achievement. And so you end up having to explain that because that's a real thing. Like we should have been like, I mean, I talk about all the cliffhangers where we were about to be pushed off our perch and we weren't. Like we suddenly found all this coal and then we suddenly found all this oil and we had a pretty lucky streak. But at the end of the day, that's not enough. And the reason that's not enough is because of the thing I talked about last week that we'll come back to, which is the Southern Cone, which is full of European Creole white supremacists who are less successful than us. Um, now, some of the explanation, and so part of this course is offering explanations for why Anglo-Germanic people have ended up on top of a system that the people who created the very whiteness that we enjoy are no longer on top of. Um, the Spanish and the Portuguese don't run the world. So I offered a commodity-based explanation. I offered a grammar-based explanation. But as we move into modernity in this story, um, I'm throwing every possible explanation at you. And today is a real treat, because today is the Jewish explanation. Um, yeah. So the great thing about the Jewish explanation is that, like, there's no reason there should still be Jews. Like, if Anglo's running the world for 300 years is a fucking long shot. The fact that all the Jews aren't dead is amazing. Um, and it's my standard rebuttal when people go, you know, history is written by the victors. And my response is, why the fuck is there all this Jewish history then? Like that, like the whole sort of like, um, well, let's say from the conquest of Judea, the end of the Herodian state. It's a 2,000 year losing streak, right? 
that and like the best history comes from the chronicle of the amazing 2000 year losing streak because there were no wins between um the colonization of Judea after the Bar Kokhba rebellion and um, the 1948 war. Like it was just a series of abject disasters. And yet the Jewish people are one of the most reliable groups for chronicling the history of the civilizations of the winners, um, which is is pretty fucking great. So, when we think about something called the postmodern turn that we're very ambivalent about these days, one of the things that preceded it were the Holocaust explainers. Um, one of the most extraordinary responses to the Holocaust was not Israel. Like that was an extraordinary fucking response. Um, And uh, deservedly so. But what was amazing in the aftermath of the Holocaust was the intellectual movement of Hannah Arendt. Hannah Arendt asked profound questions about why so many Europeans murdered their neighbors Um, and what that meant about the nature of authority, about the nature of modernity, and about the nature of pluralism. And Hannah Arendt, around her orbited an intellectual movement that was truly extraordinary. Um, I'm a big defender of Bruno Bettelheim, her least liked disciple, the man who got autism wrong, the child psychologist who was completely wrong about autism. Um, But Hannah Arendt asked profound questions about why we got so close to it all being over and why it was that... um, so many European Jews were murdered by the neighbors they trusted. Um, Today I'm going to lay out for you the thinking of the last Hannah Arendt disciple, a woman who revealed herself as an Arendt disciple and a Holocaust at the end of her career, a woman named Irene Silverblatt. And uh, maybe because of my love of irony, I'm going to use Irene Silverblatt to talk about why OPEC and the Arab nationalist states succeeded in bizarre ways they never would have imagined, but profoundly failed at doing the thing they wanted to do, which was to make the Arab world um, a part of pluralist capitalist modernity. Now, Irene Silverblatt was a historian of Latin America through her whole career. And she never talked about the fact that she was a Holocaust survivor. She never talked about the fact that she was a Hannah Arendt disciple until she reached the very end of her career. 
perhaps out of a very legitimate fear that if she told people who she really was, she would be murdered. Um, Cause that's a solid hypothesis. If you're a Jewish intellectual right up to the present fucking day. So Hannah, so Irene Silverblatt is really the last elaboration of this amazing generation of Holocaust survivor scholars who use their experience of survival to investigate why so many of their friends didn't live. And she wrote this book at the very end of her career called Modern Inquisitions, um, which tells us profound things about the nature of modernity. It is based on a terrifying and outrageous hypothesis that I love very much and that has vast explanatory power. Now, one of the things that you'll start noticing now that we're in the second half of the course is that many of the explanations I will give contradict one another. Um, because there's no way to fully explain the reality that we're in. There is no theoretical model that gets us all the way here. The Marxist model gets us closer to the present than many other models do, but it doesn't get us all the way. Um, and so what I'm going to be offering you for the rest of the course is a set of plural explanations of capitalist modernity. But without a doubt, my emotional favorite is this one. And it's Irene Silverblatt's book, Modern Inquisitions. Silverblatt's position is that modern capitalist theories of authority and social control did not emerge at the center. They did not emerge at the core. They emerged at, in this vocabulary I'm trying to offer you from Andre Gunder Frank, we talked about last week, they emerged at the periphery. And Silverblatt's argument is that the first truly modern institution that was ever built outside of China was the Spanish Inquisition. Uh which is just a lovely thought um, because progressives see the Spanish Inquisition as the opposite of modernity, not the thing that created it. So, first of all, let me take you to Silverblatt's theory. So, the thing about, so she is a friend of my friend, Ken, who was my dissertation supervisor. The supervision of my dissertation is an example of a complete failure of the system I'm gonna talk about, about authority and rationality collapsing in a room. Um, I don't think anyone has waited longer for a verdict as to whether they passed their PhD exam. It took um, 82 hours for me to find out whether I'd passed. 
um, because there was just this complete collapse of authority and rationality. Um, and I'd spent a lot of time talking about Silverblatt. So, Irene Silverblatt basically read all of the minutes and all of the proceedings generated by the Lima branch of the Spanish Inquisition. And her argument is that bureaucratic authority arose um, in an effort to legitimate the Inquisition in the Western Hemisphere. So let me go into the Inquisition and what it was about, because this actually has profound implications for our theories of human thought. So in 1215, the Lateran Council codified what we might think of as Catholicism, and they wrought a terrible fate, which was their own downfall, because they decided that there were seven sacraments, and one of the sacraments was confession. Now, what confession is, is a narration of the difference between your inner life and your outer life. And that's deeply destabilizing because most human beings for most of time have existed in what we call performance societies. A performance society is a society in which you hold it together for about four hours a week. Um, you show up at public events as the person you're supposed to be. And that's fine, that's a piece of cake, right? You get all your money together, you get all your friends together. Anybody can sort of like rock the theory of who they are about four hours a week at church and at parades and shit like that. But to go back to a couple of lectures ago, John Calvin went, that's bullshit. Who you are is who you are most of the time, not who you are at the moment you stage. And that's a lot of work. And John Calvin taught us to be conscious in a different way. He taught us that like who you are most of the time is who you really are. And all of the inhibitions you, you should have, you don't need to have four hours a week. You need to have 168 hours a week. You need to control yourself all the time because who you are is who you are most of the time. Now, that's really the main thing about modernity that's stressful. Like anybody can hold up like the crazy sham of who they're supposed to be four hours a week. You make people do that full time, they start melting down, they start going nuts. It's, it's too much. Um, and so, 
the Spanish Inquisition accidentally took the insights of Calvin, which the nature of Spanish verb tense prevented, right? There were no Calvinists in Spain because the future tense is ambiguous. But the Spanish Inquisition had material reasons for going down that rabbit hole. And the material reasons were simple. Um, Spain conquered the colony of Granada and they went, everybody should convert to Catholicism. And way too many people did. And that meant that there was way too little land to redistribute, way too few slaves to redistribute, way too little money to redistribute because all these fucking Jews and Muslims went, oh, we're Catholics now. We're going to show up and sit in the pews next to you at church. And the Spanish are like, this is not good. We can't pay the violent mercenaries who took over Granada with this tiny amount of land that the fleeing Berbers and Arabs and Sephardim uh, who've already gone to North Africa have. Some of these conversions must have been insincere. So we need to find out who is really a Catholic in their heart. And so we're going to create an institution called the Inquisition to investigate not people's behavior, but their consciousness. And this is a key element in the rise of modernity. Now, in Spain, um, the Inquisition got going and it had a bunch of investigative tools. Uh, one was searching people's homes. One was reading people's diaries, but that was not enough. So they began torturing people. But they also noticed that when you torture people, they tend to say what you want them to. And so they decided that like torture is a really problematic information acquisition mechanism. So they developed a best practices code for torture. Um, and I really think that best practices codes like pilot programs are uh, violence and evil. Um, best practices codes are a list of things you don't really have to do. Anything that isn't a rule but is in a best practices code is actually a message to the people running the system that you don't have to do that. Just like a pilot program is a message about how you could run this system if you, if you had more money, but won't. So Inquisition judges began torturing people quite a bit. And then Spain went to the New World and they seized the Aztec Empire and the Inca Empire. And among the first offices they created in Lima and Tenochtitlan were um, Inquisition offices. And it's here that we get to some of the fundamentals of modernity. 
because of course it takes three months to sail across the Atlantic and find out what the Inquisition in Seville thinks about anything. And so what that means is when people go to the Lima Inquisition office and say, what does the Inquisition think? You might send a boat back to Spain to ask, you might not, but you have to answer right now. Because otherwise you would seem powerless and useless. And so one of the things that starts to happen when they create these offices and they're ferreting people out, and at this point, like, there's even a euphemism for being a secret Jew. Um, there's a, uh, what people will say is, I think that guy might be Portuguese. Because Portugal doesn't have an inquisition. It is so, Portuguese. I can't remember the name. I can't remember it. Yeah, so, so Portuguese becomes a euphemism for, like, not policing people. Um, so, so you can't just like say, we're waiting for an answer from Seville. You have to pretend that there is a continuous system of knowledge and authority that transacts information instantaneously. And this is a belief that the Inquisitors in Lima and Tenochtitlan develop, which is that the system they're administering is so rational, they don't have to hear back from Europe in order to know what they would be told to do. And this is the beginnings of what Irene Silverblatt calls state magic. It's the last of the great conceptual categories given to us by the Holocaust survivors. Irene Silverblatt never told us she'd survived the Holocaust until she was like 80 fucking years old and wrote this book. And she went, this is what, this is the thing that modernity created. It's a thing called state magic where you go to the desk and instead of seeing the civil servant behind the desk with his child's vomit on the collar of his golf shirt, you see the majesty of the state itself the infallible majesty of the state itself. The job of the inquisitors in Lima and Mexico was to appear to be seamless with the Spanish state, even though it took three months to communicate with it. Be, and it's in this way that they incarnate the authority of the state. And we've all been there. Like, one of the things that's striking about state magic, and by the way, Canada has more state magic than any other country in the world. That's why it's still 1994 in Canada, and the state magic is like going into the shitter everywhere else. Like, nobody thinks the state is infallible or seamless or rational, except in Canada. 
maybe New Zealand and Iceland, but that's pretty much it. Uh, but Canada is the only place that's like made an accommodation with the global oil industry death cult and still has state magic. Like that's an extraordinary achievement. It's that thing where you walk up to that desk and you don't see the loser behind the desk. You see total authority. You see the top of the state. You see an entire system. Renzo, ask your question. Turn on your mic. Okay, I'm turning on my mic. I'll turn on my video. By the way, Stuart, you missed my introduction. I'm uh, I'm I'm brewing uh, a beer and cider while I'm doing this. A a very uh, that, that that's what I'm doing. So, um, okay, I have an experience with Passport Canada. I spent almost I spent 15 years avoiding getting a passport because I was terrified of going to deal with the bureaucrats at Passport Canada. I, I was, I, I'm like, of all the government bureaucrats, I mean, other than, you know, income tax, the passport office must be like authoritarian. They must be real proper bureaucrats. And when I finally went and I'm like, yeah, I don't have my proof of citizenship. Like I, I, I lost my citizenship card and they're like, yeah, that's fine. You know, just like apply for it and show us uh, your like, Canada Post receipt that you mailed it. I'm like, okay. So I did that. And then I went and I filled out the form and I went to the counter and I'm talking to this lady. We're chatting. We're having like very personal connection. And, and I'm like, did I fill the form out right? Like, like, like what would go wrong if I did the form wrong? And she's like, oh, that's fine. Whatever. We'll figure it out. And and I'm like, this is not how bureaucrats are supposed to function. Like, like if I fill out the form, you need me to redo the form, right? You need me to stand in line again. Except this is part of the, like, the image of Canada is that it, it, it's all easy and it's all welcoming. And, but, but it blew my mind that Passport Canada was so easy and simple from a bureaucratic perspective to deal with but it's not right it's easy for you and the question is why do you break the magic why is your experience of passport canada like being an egyptian citizen in cairo trying to get a passport and the answer partly is you're from the only failed white settler state on earth um Fine. Fine. so Bring first of all here. just a second your whiteness has a power in Canada that makes Canadian whites pity you because, of course, we fear that this will happen to us, even though there's no demographic reason. Which um, was because she was not white. Um, she, was, she was East Indian of some sort. Well, then you don't know if she was white, do you? Wow, that's fair. I don't know what, where. Uh, you don't know where the fucking right. color line is for her. She's probably a fucking Modiite Brahmin. And, well, and actually, she believes it, in whiteness harder than you because you left your white settler state. It, it's funny because um, she was one of the managers that usually reviews the cases. But 
because of vacations happened to be the front desk clerk. So, so she was actually a superior in the passport office that she might have been trying to do you a favor. Do you know how many Modiate Brahmins have written me pro-Hitler essays? Oh, I, oh no, she was totally doing me a favor. Oh, oh, like, yeah. Right, because like, oh, and then you're I a white who fell through the cracks, man. And this I, is where we're going next. Well, I'll, I'll send a copy of the thank you letter that I wrote afterwards because I'm me. Um, oh, yeah, no, that's lovely, Renzo. I had the opposite experience at the passport office because the Modier Brahmin saw my tainted blood. <laughs> so uh, yeah, you got to watch those fucking people. Like, yeah, fine. Everybody should read up on the Maximato uh, because uh, that is how to understand the Modi regime. Everybody thinks Japanese internment was a mistake in a different way than it was. Like, <laughs> when there are authoritarians who weaponize their diaspora, listen to some fucking Gurpreet Singh. Uh, that guy knows exactly what's going on. I think he's also in some kind of domestic siege situation with his wife. Like, have you noticed how many editorials he's written about how much he hates his wife? Anyway, that's a whole separate question. Um, but anyway, uh, the... Um, if you ever want to see like the opposite of the Dan Jennison Bowen Ma relationship, read some fucking social media posts by Ratchna and Gurpreet Singh. Um, they have a bigger house, so they can do this a whole different way. Now, this has been very helpful because it gets me to the evaluative criteria of the Inquisition at the periphery. So, I have a friend, Steve Lyons, who um, breaks state magic. Um, he's a genius, and he has a very frightening briefcase. Um, he was uh, the guy behind the door that the battering ram that attacked uh, the Glenn Clark Associated Gambling Business in 98 uh, went after. And wherever Steve goes, state magic melts. Um, and I don't fully understand why. Some of it's his intelligence, some of it's his charisma, some of it's his briefcase. Uh, like when he was coming back from Antigua and he had to change planes in Miami and they had the two lineups and one was people coming from Canada or the US and the other line was people coming from everywhere else. And he got into the line for people coming from everywhere else. And a customs officer came up to me. He's like, you're in the wrong line. So what do you mean? Look at the color of the people in that line. Look at the color of the people in this line. So one of the things that the Inquisition does is it codifies this new category that's only just been developed in the Mediterranean, right? race into rationality. And Silverblatt sees this as central to the modernist project. Um, I think that Silverblatt's explanation of racism is probably the best in the world. Racism is the ability to make more efficient guesses about what will happen. 
that's why you can't stop being racist. Because racism makes you smarter. You are rationally judging what will happen to people based on superficially looking at them. And you're right. Those are better, more efficient guesses. And one of the features of that kind of guessing is what we, we might think of as the fool's paradise. Like, what happens when your guess is wrong? Well, people become enraged and they make the guess right. You know, that black person seems rich and successful. But if we, like, beat him up and burn his store down, then your guess about him will be right. Um, race is a predictive system. And one of the things that Silverblatt observes is that the Spanish Inquisition is the birth of sociology. That they use race as a category to guess what will happen to people. And their guesses are good because there's a race system that makes the guesses true. So people go to the Inquisition in Lima and they like report their neighbors or they don't. Or therefore the, the Inquisition in Lima is forced to guess the neighbors. And so the first thing, so these inquisitors open the manual and they go, Okay, we don't want to write back to Seville because we will seem to lack authority. So we're going to have to make a bunch of guesses right here. Is this person a heretic? Well, according to the manual, Indians can't be heretics because the crown exempted them. So the question of whether people are heretics lives in their blood. Do they have Jewish blood? Do they have Negro blood? Do they have Moorish blood? Um, we can probably figure that out. We will also interrogate them, but we'd really rather not torture them because we know their answers will be less good. What we really want to do is frighten them. And this is where Silver Black goes to the most important insight of Hannah Arendt about the nature of modernity and authority. Authority has failed when it has to use violence. Authority succeeds when it threatens violence and produces the outcome without hitting anybody. Ah, uh, and this is the beginning of state magic. Now, one of the other things that inquisitors are deeply concerned about is corruption. Um, and they live in a system where, if you'll remember the lecture from a couple weeks ago, 93% of the money is being lost due to corruption. And this way, the inquisition builds its authority by being different, by being the least corrupt thing in the Spanish world. They aren't taking any bribes. They are exercising judgment because of virtue and rationality. Is this person a heretic or not? We will use as little violence as possible 
and as much rationality as possible to guess what kind of people they are. Now the Spanish Inquisition also offers people advice because it doesn't want to have to punish anyone. So there's a thing that they pick up from ecclesiastical trials that have been going on since the 12th century, which is that they advise people in a whisper about how to comply so that they will cease to be the Inquisition's problem. So one of the ways that the Holy Inquisition, the institution that precedes the Spanish Inquisition, builds public support is with divorce trials. Um, men, most of the time, we're, we're pretty shitty. Um, that's a thing. And so when the Holy Inquisition would investigate divorce trials, first of all, you have to think about who the judges are in the Holy Inquisition. Why did you decide to become an inquisitor? And the answer is because there was some reason you didn't want to get married. And I think you know what the number one reason is that men have not wanted to get married until like 20 years ago, which is they like cock. So there are all these holy inquisition trials that happen in the late medieval period where if you tell, if you're a woman, you tell the holy inquisitor, my husband beats me, he might coach you to make a different accusation. If you say he's mismanaging the farm, he might coach you to have, make a different accusation. The accusation the Holy Inquisition always wants to hear is my husband is impotent. Because at that point, it's all win. Because they can demand testimony on the stand and the testimony is take it out. So either they're going to have a very aesthetically enjoyable experience and the guy gets to keep his money and keep beating his wife, or he's under too much pressure and it doesn't work and they get to punish him and give his wife all his money. Um, this is like the sad thing about the present and I think this is one of the reasons the misogyny has gone out of control in this society in the past 10 years, is that the millennia-long alliance between gay men and straight women has broken down. And now, straight men have unbridled power and are doing crazy, crazy shit uh, because that alliance ended. Um, and really, it's hurt us all terribly. So, the Inquisition. Um, the Inquisition's pretty informed about how to deal with testimony. And the coaching of testimony is fundamental to the project. And because many of the Spanish Inquisition judges are part of the longer-term tradition of the Holy Inquisition from 1215, um, they know how to coach testimony. They know what testimony they want. And this 
is the thing from which state magic emanates. As a Canadian, when you're dealing with the state, um, when you're dealing, when you have a really satisfactory interaction, it's because you've been coached. Um, like sometimes you have a satisfactory information because you cracked the code by yourself. But those are exceptional times where you feel smart as well as successful. But when you're merely successful, it's because your testimony has been coached by the bureaucrat behind the counter. And this process of building what we call state magic in the new world changes what people see when they go to that wicket or when they're in the court or when they interact with the state. Because before the Spanish Inquisition, what people saw behind the counter, well, Jonathan, you're quite right. Protestantism is part of what broke this long-term alliance between uh, gay men and straight women. Um, Protestantism is like, that's a, it's a problematic force. Um, so when we're thinking about these interactions, right, when the Inquisition is successful, it's because an individual personifies the state and they make that regular. But that's not a normal way to think about the receptionist. Like that's a weird way to think about the receptionist, that they incarnate an implacable, infinitely powerful system of authority. And then when they tell you their opinion, they're, they're telling you the state's opinion. But you can tell that this is what we believe as part of the civilized world, and you can tell how civilized you are by asking that question. Because if you're part of the civilized world, you go, I can't believe what the phone company just did to me. Um, and you're always disappointed by the phone company. Like, think about how inflexible your expectations are that the phone company disappoints you every time. Like, why wouldn't you adjust your expectations based on what the phone company does? Why wouldn't you adjust your expectations based on what the government does, based on what Canada Post does? And the answer that Irene Silverblatt gives us is state magic. Now, the single best cinematic portrayal of state magic I've ever seen is in the title sequence to the original Twin Peaks series. So, you know, there's that T intersection in the road outside of Twin Peaks. You never know where it is. The, the intersection, right, the only reason people are there is they're on their way to violence and absurdity. Uh, there's no geographic fixed point. Although I would argue that Twin Peaks is Nelson because if you look at the travel distances from Twin Peaks to anywhere they tell you how to get to, 
It's the travel distance from Nelson. Also, if you've been to Nelson, you know it's full of dwarves and giants and telepathic logs. So uh, there's that. But the most important thing about Twin Peaks for our purposes is the light. The T intersection where there are no cars. And there's a, you're the car there and the light is red or green. And the essence of being Canadian, which David Lynch perfectly captures in Nelson, is you stop at the red light. No one is watching you. Because you've taken the rationality of the Spanish Inquisition and you've put it inside your own brain. The state is so magical that even when it's hungover representative behind the wicket isn't there, it, they don't have to be because they're inside you. Your consciousness has taken on the consciousness of the state and its authority and its rules. And it turns out that, and this is Silverblatt's great insider, one of them, is that societies that believe in state magic are vastly more efficient. Uh, and this is where Silverblatt borrows heavily from Foucault and his theory of the panopticon. Um, no, Jonathan, my point is the alliance broke down. Protestantism is about gay men and straight women going their separate way. The Anglicans are the only people who tried to keep that alliance going. Um, but most of Protestantism is the failure of that because real misogyny hates both women and gay men and would never deal them into a system of authority. That's the problem with a Protestant civilization. So what happens is in the sort of Foucauldian theory of the Panopticon, one of the reasons Silverblatt is great is that she integrates the thinking about authority from both Michel Foucault and Hannah Arendt into a single coherent whole. And so you, the authority is inside you. You stop at the light. And yes, uh, Renzo, you're quite right. One of the interesting things about Japan is for reasons that the Lords of the West have not yet figured out, somehow they figured out what was going on in Western Europe and got out right ahead of it. Even before the Meiji Restoration, the Tokugawa shogunate's creation of nationalism and its war on minority languages um, is autochthonous. It's just concurrent with what happens in France and England. But that's the thing, right? Why do people admire Canada and Japan? It's because we spend nothing on law enforcement, because we have created human souls that contain the cops. And you're your own cop, and the cop lives inside you. And that is the nature of state magic. 
that when people go to the wicket and they see the state in all its majesty, they somehow mirror it inside the human soul. And when you have a lot of state magic, everything gets cheaper and more efficient. I mentioned a few weeks ago on Facebook a thing that a woman I really quite dislike, uh, Joan Rousseau, has spent her whole academic career studying. It's the Canadian theory of voluntary compliance. It's the idea that the primary law enforcement principle of Canada is the belief that people will comply with a law simply by knowing it exists. Now, this is an illusion. That's why Silverblack calls it magic. But she doesn't just call it magic because it's not real. She also calls it magic because it works. Um, if we want to think about a term that is bandied about way too much, corruption, what corruption is, is the absence of state magic. It's you going to the wicket and the person behind the counter at the passport office, you know you have to give them extra money. They're probably being underpaid. And even if they're not being underpaid, other people have given them money because everybody sees that there's just like a guy there. He's not the state. He's just like some dude who's doing a job they don't like very much because they have to deal with strangers all day. And so state magic is rare. The, the magic that comes from the illusion, the false belief that the state is objective, infallible, fair, and all-powerful is a very profitable illusion. And it is constitutive of modernity. That modernity, Silverblatt argues, is built on magic and illusion. And we should pay a lot of attention to these men in their ridiculous vestments in Lima and Mexico City because they made the magic that you need for modernity. The modern world can't afford to enforce its rules. The modern world is efficient because it put its rules inside you and it created rituals it created performances that are austere. You, you, you stand in that line and you think about like, what is the performance here? I, I really realized like the importance of ritual in modernity when I realized that there has never been a technology that lets you get on a plane that wasn't shaped like an arch. because that's how you enter a city in the ancient world. You pass through the arch and the arch changes you. You're a different thing on the other side. 
And that's why they can't make airport scanning technology that isn't made like an arch. Because that scanning technology will only find metal or liquids or whatever it's looking for. It wouldn't make you realize you're walking into a different world controlled by different people. Uh, no, Renzo, you're quite correct. Um, the thing about the Yakuza, though, is that um, the Yakuza entered the Japanese state in the 1940s through what we call the Zaibatsu system. Um, the, the Zaibatsu system is the wholesale distribution network of Japan. And the Yakuza had to be cut in to the, um, but there's a second layer of distribution in Japan. Like here in, in Anglo-America, we only have logistics. The only thing that distributes our goods are um, the trucking industry. Um, in this way, our state magic is superior to Japan's because there's a whole additional set of warehouses in Japan where you have to put things first that are controlled by the Zaibatsu or are the Zaibatsu, which are controlled by the Yakuza, where the Yakuza can take their cut. So um, what is the world like without state magic? Well, imagine that there's a person when you go to the wicket at the passport office. And I know what it's like. Uh, oh, now that, that, that's, that's cruel, uh, Jonathan. Most of the world is like this. That's what, like, there's a person at the wicket. Now, our dear friend Steve Lyons has the power to expel state magic. Every place that we have gone and dealt with a rational governmental entity has asked Steve for a bribe. Um, he has some kind of tell that breaks it. And so he can always get anything in Canada done in a day by giving somebody a $100 bill. Because uh, they see him and he sees them. Now, state magic is powerful. But when we bandy about the term failed state, when we're judging whether America has failed, what we're actually measuring is state magic. The magic is going away. And the best story of the loss of state magic is Beirut in the 1970s. It's this moment where you stop paying your utility bill because the people you're paying your utility bill to haven't hooked up your utilities. But Canadians wouldn't do that. We keep paying our utility bills when our utilities aren't hooked up. And what happened in Beirut in the 70s was that the government was delivering services based on religion without reference to demography. And they thought that if you just kept delivering services to the Muslims um, slower than you deliver them to Christians, it would be okay. But the problem was there was a massive growth in the number of Shiite Muslims in Beirut, thanks to the Hezbollah. And so what happened was Shiite Muslims were giving money to the government, and the government was using the money 
to give water and roads to Sunnis because the government was run by Christians and it didn't notice. And so there's this moment in Beirut in the 70s where the Hezbollah starts showing up at Shiite homes and going, I know you think that we're like violent people who are bombers and are vaguely associated with a series of insurgent movements, but we can hook your cable up today. And then the Shiites start giving their money, not to the utility, but to the Hezbollah. Because they have rationally apprehended that those are the people who would deliver them the services. And what that marks is the loss of state magic. The moment the Lebanese state lost its magic, because it had squandered it, because it was inattentive and bigoted. And the problem is that this produces a dissent. Not only because then the state really starts failing and Christians start buying their utilities from the Falangist militia. And Sunnis start buying utilities from their militia. And pretty soon, people are making rational material decisions about who's going to hook up their cable and their water. And the problem is you can't turn back after that. Once you stop thinking the state is magic and start making rational decisions, you're paying bribes all the time. You're constantly bribing people. You're constantly begging people. You are con because state magic is powerful, but it's not real. And when we're watching America fail, state by state, we're watching them lose the magic. And the reason is that Republicans won't deliver services to Democrats. Whites won't deliver services to Blacks. And people are no longer seeing America, the giant gold eagle, behind the desk when they go to the office. They're just seeing some dude behind the desk. And the reality is that when you lose your state magic, you become less efficient. Every state that loses its state magic, be the citizens have a more rational and accurate understanding of what's happening. But the price of the rationality and accuracy is the incredible hit that efficiency takes because people are no longer buying in to this thing that was created in Lima in 1540, into Najdatlan in 1530. This idea that the state is so objective, that its rules are so rational, that its servants are so morally upright, that things are going to work 
based on you playing by the rules. So part of our story here of the 20th century is how the Arabic-speaking petrostates. Um, Renzo, you've got it or you, you don't. Like, Steve Lyons looks like a crazy person wherever he goes. Don't start trying to look like a less crazy person to be able to, like, leap past the state magic. That's not how that works. Um, I don't know. That guy is, like, he's one of my best friends in the world. I don't really know where his power to leap over state magic comes from but it doesn't come from his highly superficial and dubious respectability. Um, like it comes from the fact that the dictator of Antigua decided he was the best person in the world because they had the same size feet. I don't know where that comes from. Like the thing is I can talk about how state magic works, but I don't know I would be any good at, navigating a system without it. Um, that's a whole other thing to guess. I think you should write to your relatives back in Johannesburg to find out how that works. Because South Africa gets less magical every week. Um, so how does this get us to this story about the 20th century? Well, one of the things that happens in the Arabic-speaking petrostates during the 20th century is that because the world becomes totally oil-based and because the United States has wrought this reality and then run out of oil, there are all of these like deeply incapacitated, fucked-up countries that suddenly have all this power because they, they, they're sitting on oil. And what's interesting is that the great petrostates that nearly bring the Cold, Cold War order down never acquire any state magic. They remain underdeveloped countries to the present day. Saudi Arabia is awash in cash, but it has trouble building roads. It has trouble sending people to the hospital. Um, same with Kuwait or Qatar or Brunei. Like, these places have all this money running through them, but they can't become developed countries. And one of the things we, wanna, we need to consider is, is I offered you a particular theory of development that was about American imperialism last week. I'm now offering you a contradictory theory of development. That development equals state magic. It equals the ability to hold in your populace a false belief about the ubiquity and omniscience and rationality of authority. Now, what is interesting about many of these states in the Arab world that do not develop state magic or like Lebanon lose their state magic is they still force a massive realignment of capitalism in 1974. They still do fight the Russians and the Americans to a standstill by 74 
just by being so fucking rich. Uh, but we want to consider how few of the benefits of being so fucking rich redound to those states. There is all this money, but there is no magic. And this is a thing that should trouble us as materialists, because I am offering you a 100% cultural explanation of underdevelopment. There's no materiality to why Kuwait or Brunei or Saudi Arabia are underdeveloped. There is only the fact that they lack the cultural moment that contained the Spanish Inquisition. Uh, and I think one of, one of the key themes I want to articulate here is that our institute, Los Altos Institute, is a materialist. It believes in a Marxist theory of history. But we also recognize that that history is insufficient, that it is troubled and rendered incomplete and confusing by the work of people like Irene Silverblatt, that the post-structuralist project we associate with her and her love of Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, all of that does contain something because no one can find a materialist core here. The story of Saudi Arabia should trouble us because it is the opposite of the story of Argentina. Argentina, we can explain with materialism for why it's not us. We cannot explain with a purely materialist analysis why Saudi Arabia is not us. Why they weren't just able to convert that huge windfall in wealth, vast education, a centralized state, into being developed. All right, so it's uh, 2.11. Um, throw some questions at me. So your theory here is that Argentina wants to be developed, but doesn't have the material basis to succeed. Well, no, the, it's not the material basis to succeed. It's that it suffers from, um, it's that it's part of the periphery. So it's undermined by the core. Um, yes, that there is an external force underdeveloping it, right? It's functioning to be poor to fund American businesses. Yes, and, and it has become rich only when that force has gone away. We can totally explain the Southern Cone or Central America by America going in there and restructuring the economy every time wealth starts staying there. And we can't use that in the core of the Arab world. Because you have to assume that they want to be developed. Everybody wants to be developed. So we know why Argentina fails to develop or why Brazil fails to develop. There is an external malignant force. Saudi Arabia 
is not the same show. So the Saudi been- royal family isn't colonized by America the way the Argentine army is. Saudi Arabia is exporting the good that America, that American power is based on. And Saudi Arabia, and the reason I use it first, not just because it's the biggest, Saudi Arabia fought a war against everybody in the world to come into being. In 1918, Winston Churchill's plan was to install the Hashemite monarchy, which he installed in uh, Jordan and Iraq as the monarchy of Arabia. And these fucking maniacs, these illiterate maniacs, the Sauds, fought the British army to a standstill and seized control of that state. There's no story where the Sauds make a deal with the British. There's no story of like massive external investment in Saudi Arabia. It's a state that arises despite other people's imperialist ambitions. But even though it's powerful and rich, it has no state magic. So, I mean, I, I, the answer seems kind of obvious to me. Um, and it, I'm, I'm going to tell somewhat a couple of quotes that I remember from my childhood, um, being both coming from upper crust South Africa, Afrikaner, but also then when I moved to Vancouver, I moved into West Vancouver because that's where people like us moved to. Um, so Spain used to have a lot of money that they get developed by the standards of their era when they had cash? The Spanish empire is a failure of a fallacy. It's why, um, so it's why objective theories of value failed. I offer you the Paraguay story for why objective theories of value can succeed. Um, Spain is a story of why it failed. Spain sought gold and silver. It didn't seek commodities. So it just in- kept increasing its amount of currency, which produced inflation and deindustrialization. It kept plundering gold from the new world to make itself rich, but the plundering of gold made it poor. So as, as I used to hear a lot of times as a kid, money can't buy class. And, and like, like you can be, like it, it's not about your money or your wealth. It's there's something else there, and so if and and there's also the perspective of new money versus old money. Gaining wealth fast is not. You don't know how to use it necessarily. People who who suddenly gain wealth, whereas long-term wealth accumulation or wealth by an incredible sacrifice is so so renzo i'm gonna stop you i'm gonna channel chris rock here all right black america has a lot of rich people we got no fucking wealth so what is the difference between being rich and wealth shock 
is rich. The white man who signs his paycheck is wealthy. Rich is something you can lose with a crazy slumber, summer and a drug problem. Rick James was rich, and now he's doing old Navy ads. Wealth is something you can't get rid of. Wealth is empowering. Wealth is the kind of money people with people who own Walmart have. Wealth is controlled by people who own the fucking color blue. Donald Trump is wealth. Like, if you could squander wealth, Donald Trump is a textbook example of it. It's a mass of, like, incest and bankruptcy and public humiliation. And he has been on the incest, bankruptcy, public humiliation track for 55 years, and he's the motherfucking president of the United States. Um... I, there is a story of continence that I grew up with because, like, since the day slavery was abolished, my lineage has been making me. I am the ultimate success of black respectability, where they made, like, this incredibly sophisticated, clever black guy, and then the color line moved, and I wasn't even black anymore. And like it accelerated the whole project by a hundred years. But there's a quantitative scale here, Renzo. Like my decisions are consequential. When I make decisions, they affect whether I'm rich or poor. Donald Trump has never made a consequential decision about whether he was rich or poor. Because when you have wealth as opposed to being rich, None of your decisions are consequential. So my my perspective on, on Saudi Arabia being developed is give them another 100 or 200 years and see where they're at. I think they're going to grow more underdeveloped. Yeah. <laughs> Look at what Trump is doing to America. That, what Trump is doing is he is enacting America, he is enacting underdevelopment on the core. He is turning. He is, he is producing an internal periphery. That's his project. Like, when money collides with things, any fucking thing might happen. Um, Saudi Arabia will succeed or fail based on the ability of their society to hold and contain wealth not to generate it. Yeah. And the central feature that appears to pertain to the holding and containing of wealth, at least according to what I say today and not what I say next lecture, but if I'm defending Irene Silverblatt, my argument is this. The power to contain is central to development. It is not the power to generate. Because in fact, what the power to generate does, it distracts people. That's why Egypt has had its shitty losing streak. Like, the people who are like coming in second after the Jews are like, look at all this amazing stuff we have. Why, why is our losing streak so fucking long? 
And one might say, well, there's a sort of karmic payback. You did stage the first pogrom. Um, but that's the thing. Like the Nile Delta is just a money generation generator. It's a surplus generator. And the only way that Egypt has been able to emancipate itself and, be, and attain any kind of restored independence is by ecologically destroying the Nile Delta by building the Aswan Dam. They made themselves poorer to attain, to regain control, to take back control. Um, the thing about wealth is people see it and they go for it. People see wealth, they see shiny things, and they try and steal those things. And this is why, right, Lao Tzu remains the greatest economic theorist of the ancient world. Not exalting the gifted prevents quarreling. Not collecting treasures prevents stealing. Not seeing desirable things prevents confusion of the heart. I think to that point, like you look at Saudi Arabia's riches, like all of that comes from the United States order and like the global order we have now that everybody has to use oil all the time. And if you don't use oil, then why do you hate humanity, right? You're a genocider if you want to use photovoltaics or whatever, nuclear. And a lot of people don't remember that the United States has been the biggest exporter of oil for like 10 years. Saudi Arabia's star is already declining. We just can't see the internal effects of it from over here yet, I don't think. Well, I think that's true. And it's a real shame that Solomon ended up in power because his predecessors were really trying to go on the Dubai route. It's like, we're going to create an arcology that protects the ruling class and we're going to bet on attracting the global ruling class to our arcology. Um, like the Dubai strategy makes sense. The problem is that, um, you know, Solomon's a family annihilator like Trump. Um, and also that the using, using the family, um, is a great way to undermine bureaucracy. Like the Saudi bureaucracy can't build a myth about itself the way the Chinese bureaucracy can, because your promotion within it is still tied to your consanguinity with the Saudi lineage. And so because you have to have the blood of the Saud family in you, you can't sell a myth that your bureaucracy is meritocratic. And this is, a, this is, this is materially irrelevant, but in terms of the construction of state magic, it's highly pertinent. Renzo. I have one more question. I hope people don't mind. Um, on China, actually, um, would you say that the level of state magic within China is increasing based on their restrictive natures? Oh, wow. You got to You got to take a hoot to answer this one. <laughs> um, um, I have never given this lecture sober and I'm not going to start now. Um, so six years, I've never given this lecture sober. Right. Um, but okay. So, based on their social credit and their obvious authoritarian police regime and all of that, 
and the attempts on Hong Kong, like, would you say that their state magic is increasing or is it just that they're trying to increase it without necessarily being effective? Um, so I would say that one of the things China's locked into is Narendra Modi building Indian imperialism on Plutarch Ocaius's theory um, and Hirohito's theory. So like, if we go back to the 1920s, um, so one of the things we love to do in Canada is our whiteness comes from our white guilt. So every racist thing we did in the past, our condemnation of it is uh, constitutive of the authority that legitimates our power today. So we condemn Indian residential schools while continuing their practices because we want our ancestors to be evil and us for, for us to be an unprecedented good. Um, we need to go there not just with respect to indigenous residential schools, we need to go there with respect to the internment. Now the internment was wrong but that does not mean that there was not an evidentiary basis for doing it. The Japanese empire and the Mexican empire in the early days of fascism in the 20s and 30s developed incredible social technologies for weaponizing their diasporas. Plutarco Calles and uh, Hirohito's prime minister, Tojo, um, they saw that by having large diasporic presences in democratic states, they could exercise influence outside their country. And they sought to do that. They sought to weaponize their diasporas. And so they used their consulates to organize block voting and block investment. And like the, the internment was wrong, but we did need to respond to that in the 20s. We did need to respond to the fact that there was a hostile fascist state that was using its power to control Japanese voters here. Now, what's going on is that the first global fascist leader who figured that out is Narendra Modi. And Modi was years ahead of the other empires. Well, no, no, um, I've got to make deals with the people who fled India to get away from me because I can use it to control the Asparic states. I can use it. And I believe there's huge amounts of evidence for it. He's the thing that pushed Trump in, into office. Be, you remember that crazy fundraising event where Trump was covered in gold and wore that weird Indian costume and announced, I support Hindu. Um, Trump organized a massive Hindu nationalist rally in America because Hindu nationalism is the oldest white supremacist ideology in the world. It's in the fucking Bhagavad Gita. Um, like, White supremacy has existed in India for 3,000 years. And Trump targeted Indians who thought they were white, Brazilians who thought they were white, Argentines who thought they were white. And he went, you're white according to your scheme of values, and I see your whiteness. 
I recognize it. That's what we're dealing with here. So Modi weaponized his diaspora and Xi Jinping did so in retaliation. Xi Jinping, well, oh shit, we're playing this game now. So one of the things we have to recognize is that you have these politically weaponized global diasporas at this point. Um, and that this, there, this is, this is central to the big game. That a diasporic community and, and, and Modi's efforts to reconcile with the people who fled India after the seizure of the Golden Temple, his efforts to forgive Sikhs who are high caste Sikhs rather than low caste Sikhs is, is central to this project. Um, so there's a complexity here. It's, it's only peripheral to the question of state magic. Um, there are global forms of nationalism that have existed since the original Gilded Age. And um, we have to be attentive to those. Did I answer your question? I didn't know what it was. No, so my, my question was much more internal to China and specifically relating to um, their social credit system, but also like the videos I've seen of the Hong Kong riots and, and the police, there's a, there's a clinical impartiality of the police against the protesters. Like, like there's like a lack of anger, which seems like a far more state magic influence. But then of course there's the social credit. Well, I mean, it's in some no, ways- No, 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 Jonathan, I'm gonna disagree with you by agreeing with you. The social credit system is not fully operational. Right. And my, my friend, Gary Liu, who's from the Chinese diaspora is terrified of it. It probably matters because more he knows what it's going to do. Right, they're bringing There's it an up. anticipatory fear of the Chinese social credit system within the diaspora. And that has turned a lot of people who were anti-nationalists into nationalists, not out of conviction, but out of fear. The Chinese so sorry, go on. No, that that I get. I feel it myself because I do business in China. Right. So it really affects people like me more than your average person in mainland China who knows who to bribe, which is right. So you see that the magic lives in the social credit system, right? And one of the reasons that people in the diaspora and in China are buying in is like China was the greatest nation on earth for 2000 years. And then they were like humiliated in really ugly ways. They have a and long there's a huge social memory of that. Yeah. There are all kinds of people who are like Chinese socialist feminists. Steph Lim is a great example. Like, why is Steph Lim still my Facebook friend? Like, she's an identitarian. She's a feminist. And she sees me as like a disgusting, rude, white guy. I'm everything that's wrong with progressivism. Why is she still my friend? Because the first time I met her at a party she admitted to me 
that she just loves watching the empire get its back back on its feet and engage in its hyper arbitrary revenge project like there are a lot of scores the chinese empire wants to settle after being on top for 2000 years and then enduring 200 years of utter humiliation yeah and central though to their project and i, I think this is what may tie it all together is that they want the magic back. Um, and they still haven't got it back. Like they've built a way more efficient surveillance state. And the reason they've built a way more efficient surveillance state is it has to be in cameras and cops and army officers because they still lack what white people have which is that the surveillance system is installed inside us. It's inside us. It's psychological. You don't need to build any physical infrastructure for our surveillance system. And there is a highly ambivalent aspiration to its restoration in the Chinese diaspora. And especially like when they're watching us like destroy the planet there's this sense of surely the old empire can't be that bad. But the thing that the old empire had before anyone else did and then lost was the ability to, to install a surveillance software inside its people's brains. And so that's an ongoing project, but they're not there yet. Chinese people are still paying bribes. They're still like privately laughing at how, at all, at their officials. Like you can't have a Bonnie Henry in China. <laughs> like no one would build shoes as a tribute to some fucking Chinese governor. Like they still haven't got that back. There's an intelligence, <laughs> there's an imperialism, there's an efficiency, but the state magic lives in John Fluvog building those shoes. Our desire to worship these absurd authority figures, like who, who fucking is this woman? She was called out in the SARS inquiry for falsifying test results and throwing them in the garbage at Sunnybrook Hospital so she could report that she'd cured SARS. And then she became a permanent assistant professor for 16 years at the second most important university in Winnipeg. And in 2018, Adrian Dix plucked her out of obscurity. And we're worshiping this person? Like that, that is how state magic is collapsing everywhere but Canada. Justin Trudeau and Bonnie Henry and Adrian Dix would be laughable figures in any other state. Rebecca? Um, as a, like, I would call myself a recovered Christian, I guess, um, how much of like Protestantism and the ability to communicate directly with God is related to our internal magic, right? Like, I feel like that's a really bedrock feature of 
of most Protestantism is that you can talk to God. And so God is in your head and God is telling you what to do and matches all of those other things that have been told to you by authority. So it's in there. You have it. So this was my operative theory uh, for several decades. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that um, you have a client-server relationship with God, yeah. that you're in a... Um, it's there. Uh, you're you're not in a peer-to-peer -peer network. You're in a client-server network with God. Yep. Um, I totally thought this was the thing mm -hmm. that it was Lutheranism, not Calvinism, that made us these weird African ice wallabies, these very strange creatures. And then I read this amazing book called Alone Before God by Pamela Vocal. Okay. Um. And what she pointed out, and if you ever, if you want to decode Canada, this is the book. Because the thing, the, the reason Canada is this weird thing that it is, is we captured a piece of Latin America and refused to let it go, even when it repeatedly asked to. Like, I, I don't like federalists in Quebec. If I lived in Quebec, I would be dying to go. Yeah. Like, how did I get into this shitty country? No, you wouldn't. <laughs> it is a terrible country. But of course, like, if you're an Anglo in Canada, you want to hold them prisoner because you know you'll just be America without them. Yes. But yeah. like an extra toadying, extra submissive America? Like, who would ever want to be that? So what Vocal explained is that the most profound and most influential heretical movement in Calvinism, uh, pardon me, in Catholicism, is a thing called Jansenism. There's a guy named Cornelius Jansen who basically articulated all of John Calvin's views and then ended them with, but I'm staying. So, there are two theories of liberalism. There's a European continental theory of liberalism, and there's an Anglo theory of liberalism. The Anglo theory of liberalism is democratic. The continental European theory of liberalism, what we might call Napoleonic liberalism or Jansenist liberalism, is anti-democratic. Um, whereas Calvin believed that if people group up, They'll probably make decent decisions because that's what Jesus said. Um, Jansenists have all of the views that Calvin had about democracy, everything but democracy. What the Jansenists believe is that the greatest threat to human freedom is democracy. That if people group up, they will start telling people near them what to do. And we can't let that happen. What we need is that pure client-server relationship with God. Yep. We need to be alone before God. Now, the Jansenists know that they're heretics. Mm -hmm. And they accept because, that judgment. They accept only the, the authority. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. Well, no, not that. Oh. They believe that their job is to bring about God's theory of freedom 
by working against the church. And so Jansenists have been, so Jansenists have been responsible for all of the violent secularization programs in the world. So according to the Mexican constitution, no one can wear priest vestments in public and no religion can hold a parade. Um, that's not just against Mexican law, that's against the Mexican constitution. Um, they you, believe that they believe they're working for God and against mm -hmm. the church. That's their theory of liberalism. They believe they're working against democracy and they're working against the church and they're mm -hmm. working for God. And what they want to do is free the sovereign will of all people. So okay. who, so Jansenists are the first people in the world to draft legislation against religious garments. And now I'm going to take you to the Canadian case. There's an event that changed Canada into the thing we are now, whatever this weird thing is, called the Quiet Revolution. So the Quiet Revolution was full of a bunch of people who like in the Mexican revolution, which was also Jansenist, mm -hmm. all turned against each other during and after the revolution. Uh, it's a beautiful story, right? There are these meetings in René Levesque's apartment with Pierre Trudeau. And the most important figure in this, Thérèse Casquelin. Thérèse Casquelin, leader of the Quebec Socialist Party, the Quebec CCF, and the Quebec NDP, um, was the greatest feminist of the 20th century in Quebec. And she saw how the church controlled Quebec society. In particular, it controlled Quebec society by controlling what women wore. Um, Quebec was a surveillance state. Is your, shirt too, is your skirt too short? Um, are you wearing black after your husband died? All of these things. Um, are you a nun? You need to dress like this. Um, so Quebec, like most of Latin, because like most of the rest of Latin America, because that's what Quebec is, it's the richest Latin American country. Um, it was a theocratic system that the Catholic Church controlled. It didn't let you choose anything. And the way it didn't let you choose anything was democracy. Mm -hmm. Elections. People voting against you getting to choose things. That's, and this is Napoleon's criticism of democracy too. Democracy in the minds of Jansenists is a countervailing force against liberty. It's not liberty. And so what the quiet revolutionaries, even though they all turn on each other, just like the Mexican revolutionaries, what they all believed was that you have to stop society from fucking with people so they can exercise their God-given free will. So what did Plutarco Callas do after the Mexican Revolution? He, re he declared war on the church, but he did so in the name of God. 
he believed that he was restoring people's God-given free will by attacking the church. And so he prohibited the wearing of clerical vestments. He prohibited the uh, staging of clerical parades. He did all that stuff. That is what the Quiet Revolution originally stood for. Mm-hmm. Because the, the old system was against the secret ballot. Like that shot of Donald Trump looking at Melania's ballot, that's the old system. Um, it was a patriarchal society where women were under constant surveillance and they, yeah. they, they couldn't exercise their God-given free will. Now, even though Levesque and Trudeau disagreed about a lot of stuff, when they're all in Levesque's kitchen and they never liked each other, they hate each other all along, uh, for superficial and silly reasons. Um, but, I mean, they're both pretty prickly people. And also, Levesque was a homophobe, and Trudeau really liked all kinds of sex. Um, and that's part of what he fought for. Yeah. Like, generally, you need a straight person to make gay sex legal. I think Trudeau is, like, the only non-straight person who was willing to have that shot taken against him that like, mm-hmm. I'm going to make the sex I like legal and come at me. It was a courageous dude. But these people are all Jansenists, like the Mexican and Argentine revolutionaries. Mm-hmm. And so what they see is the church's power is that it exercises its authority outside the state that it does so through social pressure, through the sacraments. And of course, these people are still in the church, so they think the sacraments determine whether they go to heaven or hell. And they want to get these things away from the fucking mafia that's running them. And so they believe that in order to save their souls and other people's souls, they have to smash the church because God has told them to. And so it's not a Lutheran thing like us Anglo-Protestants would think um, because it's outside our experience. But I want you to think about that law in Quebec. One of the reasons that it's so popular is that there are old ladies in Quebec who are like in their 70s and 80s who were beaten in the streets for dressing wrong, um, who sided with Trudeau and Levesque back when they were on the same side and sided with Thérèse Casclin, the leader of the socialists, the spiritual leader of both of those guys, um, who went, this is not right. Like, you don't need the state to bully people. You just need the state to look away. And Maurice Duplessis, right, he got a de facto concordat with the Pope. He was allowed to appoint bishops in Quebec because he established a system of social control where the church fused with the state and abridged everyone's liberty. One of the best stories in, uh, and I recommend, it, try and find this, I don't know whether it's still on the internet, the NFB used to have it, there's a documentary called Champions about the um, 
careers of Trudeau and Levesque, made by Donald Britton in the 80s. They interview Levesque's campaign manager from the 1960 election. And Levesque's campaign manager was a boxing promoter, an ex-boxer. And what Levesque explained to him was that the Duplessis people were going to be in the streets and they were going to stop the women in short skirts and the guys who didn't go to church and all those people from voting like they had for 20 years. And in order for the quiet revolution to succeed, these other men had to go into the street and fight them. Like it was this visceral fight about the surveillance of people's sexual morality and about their right to decide how to live and how to look. And Canada has this 23% streak of that in us. Um, and no one ever explains it. No one ever explains why there are these women in their 80s and 70s in Quebec who are cheering for um, this fake secularism thing because they know, and they're not wrong, that there are girls in Montreal whose imam has told them that they are unclean in the sight of God when they, master, uh, when they menstruate. There are boys in Montreal who have been told they're unclean in the sight of God when they masturbate. Um, that there are these like old patriarchies living in cosmopolitan cities. And these women were liberated from those patriarchies 60 years ago. And they're not racists. They want to free young women like they remember being. And so uh, we thought, many of us Anglos thought that this is like about the Lutheran client-server relationship, but it's actually a much more deeply visceral thing. It's about how Catholicism was able to situate it outside the state in order to control the state, in order to continue practicing social control during a superficial secularization. And what these people side with is a deep secularization. And this is why, even though Jansenists are anti-democratic, they're against us on the democracy front. But on the secularization front, they're our allies. Good story. Thank you. Yeah. People hate that story. I'm just really surprised Cornelius Jansen is not a Mennonite. Well, Cornelius, I, yeah, yeah. Well, the Mennonites are a whole other force. We should, uh, we should. I know talk at about least two somewhere. Mennonites called Cornelius Jansen, which is why I'm surprised. Well, Mennonites are really good at getting jokes. Also, single biggest funder of the Occupy movement, the Mennonite Central Committee. Really? Yeah. I did not know that. They're pretty great in some ways, and not so great in other ways. And you can see all of it through the Occupy movement. Like, <laughs> they funded this amazing revolutionary thing, and then they went right up their ass over really bullshit questions about how democracy works. 
It's like occupied distilled in 18 months, the 400 year failure of Mennonites. So, I mean, it's, it, a lot of the discussions on Calvinism have been really fascinating for me because in many ways, I, I am an inheritor of Calvinism in, in an offshoot of, of what the Anglo sphere would consider Calvinism. Um, right. Well, you were the only, your people were the only people who didn't have the benefit of a virgin soil epidemic. So you made very different accommodations when you got there. Well, yes, but also there were competing, and I don't know the time frame. This is actually something that I think I should look into, but there were competing religious forces between the strict Calvinists, which turned into the Dutch Reformed Church, which created the apartheid, and then the what we would call far more liberal, uh, the, the, the more progressive churches, because I grew up in a very, what, what, I mean, the direct translation from the church that I was born into in South Africa to Canada was the United Church of Canada. Nice. And, and the United Church of Canada is, I mean, you don't even have to believe in God to, to be a minister. Like, like, you could be a minister of the United Church of Canada without believing in God. And so I came from one of the most religiously conservative places to, and, and that was, there was a similar church there that my parents took me to. No, I, I mean, Renzo, honestly, um, it is a really interesting story of um, ecumenism. So the United Church of Canada, let's be clear, is the only successful version of its project on Earth. And again, it tells us something special about Canada. We are the only place where Protestant denominations reunified into a single church. Um, and there are no Methodists in Canada. Oh, that's what they were. They were and Meth the Methodists, Methodists agreed to merge with the Congregationalists to create the United Church of Canada. Now, I'm enamored of the Ramsey Cook thesis. Um, and the reason this was possible in Canada was our love of progressivism which of course I'm not a progressive. One of the features of progressivism is an extreme form of state magic. It's a belief in the power of expert authority. And the, the United Church was really a four-part merger. So 70% of the Presbyterians joined, 100% of the Congregationalists joined, 100% of the Methodists joined. But there was a fourth party, and the fourth party were social scientists. All of those groups believed that the practice of social science would discover justice, which is central to the progressive fallacy. And so we, we can't view this as three churches agreeing to get together. What we have to understand this to be 
is an elaboration of progressivism into another sphere. And the reason the elaboration happened had to do with the delivery of social services. Um, churches were the primary delivery system for social services until 1848. Mm -hmm. That's why the Catholic Church went from being the world's largest abortion provider to the world's largest anti-abortion organization in 11 years. Um, so churches were providing these services. And in Canada, the churches understood that settlement house workers and nurses and social workers, all these new professions that were coming into being, were of a piece with them. And so they felt very confident about buying into the progressive project, a project in which social science would tell you the mind of God. Now, nothing like that is going on in South Africa because um, these black people are refusing to die. Like there's just way too fucking many of them. And so you have the same ideology, a Calvinist ideology that finds itself in a state of war. Like as badly as Afrikaners suppress the Sosa and the Zulu. They awesome. never persuaded those groups of the logic of their value system. Instead, they exiled those groups from society itself. And so what we see uniquely in South Africa is Protestantism in a state of war. And Protestants don't know what to do if they don't win right away. Their only experiences are losing right away or winning right away. And South Africa sits as this outlying experience of not doing either thing. And so it descends into fascism. Um, and, you know, I really have not studied Dutch Reform doctrine post-48. Well, I mean, I, I don't know much about Dutch Reform doctrine, but when, when you said the Methodists, that, that's what rang the bell, was that my, my parents went to the Methodist church, and that's why when we came to Canada, we became United Churches. And in fact, um, several ministers from the South African Methodist church came to Canada to join the United Church. Yeah, and why were they tolerated? Because we're so fucking racist. It's why we let South African doctors come here and practice their quack white supremacist medicine, no questions asked. Uh, we, um, uh, it's, it's one of the adorable things about being a white settler state. I, I got nothing. <laughs> I think you, you finally shut me up. <laughs> well, um, that's, uh, I'm not even sure I wanted that win. <laughs> I mean, what happens if I'm the last guy who keeps speaking? I don't know, Renzo. Um, but uh, I... I'm wearing a shirt today. Pardon me? Oh, nice. Uh, what does that fucking say? 
something says talk to me of blasphemy man i'd strike the sun if it insulted me zoinks um why does it say moby dick at the bottom it's a quote from captain ahab oh um yeah, I'm I'm very enamored of the Ron Swanson exegesis of uh, of uh, Moby Dick from Parks and Rec. It's like I don't know what people are talking about. It's a very simple story of one man's hatred for an animal. <laughs> so, um, hey, this is our longest class ever. Yes, that's right. And there's a reason for that. Like the state magic class is always the best class of the term. Um, finally got you fired. Um, I don't know what got me fired. My theory is that um, I complimented a man from the Arab world in a way that implied that I knew he was a closeted homosexual. It's my 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 only theory about why I was fired. I just I like Tamir Mustafa had only met me once before I became his boss before he became my boss. And I was just standing in an elevator feeling awkward and I went, you know, Tamir, you look very summery in that outfit. And then it was just war. And it's like, ah, and, and then it, it took quite a while for somebody to decode that. It's like, you know, you might have accused him of being a closeted gay man. It's like, ah, you might have, well, you might have made a pass at him is the thing. No, I think that would have gone fine. I think Corey is pretty convinced that if I'd done that, this would have worked out okay. Well, maybe not for me, because I don't really enjoy that sort of thing. But, um... Uh, that would easily have been the best way out. Um, but instead, um, I accused him of being summary, and then it was war. And uh, now here I am in Prince George. Um, so, we, uh, I'm going to let you guys go soon. But this is the middle of the course. Because we're going, we're doing two kinds of narration in the course. I have told you a story that takes you to the 20th century, the century we were born in. And it was a linear story with clear explanations. Now that we're in the 20th century, there's a set of contradictory and complementary explanations because there is no satisfactory explanation for why we're here. How could any of us be satisfied with the explanation for why we're here? Like, this is insane. Like we're living in a completely insane world. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you a bunch of data, but each time I tell the story, it will be based on a different hypothesis of why we're here. Who was trying to speak? Um, you, you, you almost forget that I'm a Discordian. 
Well, actually, Renzo, I've read about that ideology, and I don't think it passes muster as an ideology in terms of the ideologies oh, it, it, I, it, I, I, uh, I study. Oh, it, it just, everything is crazy. No explanation makes sense. The world is fucked. Uh, what do we do next? Uh, let's have a drink or a toke or something. Uh, well... I would recommend that you read, um, I don't know whether you're aware of the work of Sam Chris. Yep. Uh, Sam Chris is probably one of the finest um, intellectuals in our era. Um, and um, just a second here, I'm just gonna find the article. Um, he wrote an amazing uh, piece uh, called On the Stupidity of Nate Silver. <laughs> um and uh and, and and maybe we should uh we should go out with that i just want to to read you because discordianism is not the way to go sam chris is the way to go and i'll i'll read you the first two paragraphs i'll, I'll take i'll take whichever is more batshit crazy if there's a dominant experience of the 21st century it's that of living in a world that does not make sense Life is stupid. Yep. Not stupid in the same way a person might be stupid, in the sense of an incomplete grasp of the facts and a throttled slowness in the processing of those it has, but a slick, dizzy, reckless, triumphant, positive stupidity. A stupidity that happily assimilates itself into all forms of intelligence, Sexual relationships are stupid. Any form can only dissolve. Monogamy, polygamy, celibacy, all teeming in panic about our inability to cope with people other than ourselves, charging like flies against a window pane. Work is stupid. Pointless drudgery that no longer pretends to have anything more in common with actual productive labor than ritual animal sacrifice so that there's nobody who won't freely admit that they've wasted their life, that the cherished tradition of killing time in an office had to be introduced as a new form of labor discipline. Let democratic politics are stupid, not so much a reality show, a uh, reality TV show as a glorified version of the policeman's identity parade, but in reverse time. The mass of voters identify the perk and then he gets to go and commit his crimes. The international order is stupid. Drug laws are stupid. Global warming is stupid. Mass media is stupid. Going to the beach is stupid. The sun and moon are stupid. Staying at home is stupid. The tiny furrowed, uh, the tiny furrowed creatures that burrow between immense grains of earth are stupid. The world is ending. How did we end up here? Somewhere along the road, centuries ago, millennia ago, we took a very wrong turn. Hegel might have described a parallel reality where it never happened, but here, every new stage of history is a further progression in the dialectic of the original mistake. A stupid world can still make sense. What faces us now is the collapse of all explanatory 
and predictive mechanisms, the gods who had a plan can no longer account for a world without one, nor can divination or the natural sciences or Marxism. The gods were supposed to let us know what was good and just. Instead, they fucked us in the form of a swan. And the war that started has no ceasefire. Um, uh, the natural sciences were supposed to flood the dark corners of the universe with reason. Instead, they choked the air with smog. Stupidity triumphant isn't defeated by its opposite. It crawls on the world on slug trails, searching for cleverness to eat. Look at the US election with every stupid lie Donald Trump speaks. A thousand liberals jump up like snakes from a can to explain why he's wrong as if they don't realize that being wrong is in no sense a fault. So, um, no, I, I think you need to Discord. move from Discordianism no, no, to uh, Sam Chris. Uh, that fits completely within the Discordian worldview. That, like, like absolutely 100%. I will read far more of Sam Chris because that is exactly up my alley. Um, but that it, that describes the Discordian worldview. Well, I certainly have more respect for Sam Chris in realizing the depth of his nihilism, um, because when he doesn't take the time to explain it, you just think he's a cynical hypocrite. Well, too much. But of you've also got to admit that um, his interventions on anti-Semitism—he um, really pulled himself together for that. Well, no, I was deeply, deeply dissatisfied with that. Oh, say more stuff, because I thought he was brilliant. I thought when he went, so that's how they've been able to say, if you don't get what you want, blame the Jews, um, that he had really defended Corbyn in a fairly profound way. No, no, all, all he said was, when Corbyn is anti-Semitic, it's not because he doesn't like... Well, it is because he doesn't like Jews. What he said was it doesn't matter because it's just hazing. The bullying of Jews is genuine bullying, but like traditional forms of bullying in the British system, it's there to haze Jews. And once the uh, Jews I don't, haze, uh, I don't think he wrote that. He wrote exactly that. Okay, you're going to have to send <laughs> me a fucking citation, man. Because uh, literally the only thing of his... I, I read I, all of his anti-Semitism stuff during the election. I, well, I just read the one thing you sent right before the election. I don't think that's what he said in that thing. Not in so many words. I think that we're going to a really good place. Um, and one of the things this course does not cover, uh, Wes Regan, he really, like, he does, what I love about Wes Regan, Renzo, is he didn't know how narcissistic you have to be to succeed at green politics. Like, he is washed out of green politics because of his mediocre narcissism. Um, he, just, he, just, he just couldn't match me or Adrian Carr or Elizabeth May. Uh, and he's washed out. Now he's labeling beer. Well, no, this is from his election, actually. Of course it is. Ooh. Yeah, I, I use it for uh, making 
uh, homebrew and home, home wine and stuff, you know. So um, what I was going to suggest about the, the, the Sam, it's interesting because what we're dealing with is a question that will have to be the subject of a future course, which is exegesis which is how we read texts and derive truth and authority from them. And I come out of a very particular tradition there. But I understand that Marxism derives from a Talmudic theory of exegesis, which is not my own. And so my, my question about the Sam Crispies is are you applying a Talmudic theory of exegesis or a rationalist theory? I don't think I'm a good enough Talmudist to even know what I'm doing. I'm simply reading, but I'm reading it from a context of Jewish experience. Right, as, as any rational Jew would. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it isn't Talmudist. I know. I, I mean, that's my central argument about Marxism, is that it, beats capitalism by grabbing a Talmudic theory of exegesis and out-reasoning people with a figural theory of exegesis, which comes out of Christianity. And uh, so this is why I'm interested. Right, so Marxism is Christianity explained to the Christians the way only a Jew would explain it. Which is, uh, i.e., not Christianity. But also not Judaism. Um, I don't know. Like, the thing about the isms, so one of the moments for me of a massive intellectual realignment was my work with this dude named Steve Mason, who um, was about to become a Pentecostal minister um, and took uh, a scripture course and realized that he couldn't hold all the bullshit together anymore. And so then he started like studying scripture based on reason. And he's like the greatest uh, historian of the Christian Jewish divergence in the third century Mediterranean. And um, I would argue that, uh, so his argument is that rabbinic Judaism, the Talmudic uh, disputational tradition, arises as the antithesis of Christianity. That the Judaism that exists in the world is exactly as old as Christianity because it had to become not Christianity. And given that the central argument of Christianity until the third century was we're the real Jews, Judaism itself had to break with that. It had to go, there is a bunch of stuff that's Christian that's not us. And it created a, a, um, a hyper-rational disputational theory. And there's, there are things about Jewishness that exist before the 200s, but there are no things about Judaism that exist before the 200s. And, sorry, go on. That could all be true. The fact is, I'm not, I don't think I'm educated enough in that area to actually situate myself in the taxonomy. That no, no, that, that, that's fair. You're a, you're a post-split Jewish person. 
Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, that's the thing. You can't use the idea of pre-existence to talk about the Jewish-Christian conversation. Because I, I, I buy Mason that the Jewish-Christian conversation, the two things come into being at the same moment. Because until that moment, they were parts of the same thing. No, that makes sense. Anyways, we can talk about, about Sam Chris later. We're obviously reading in very different Right, and I, I think our respective exegetical traditions are probably important there. Anyway, I still believe his takedown of Nate Silver is superb. His realization that an internet parody account was a better predictor of elections than Nate Silver is the basis of the article, and that is a beautiful discovery. That satire is more likely to find out what will happen next than math. This is not going to discourage the Discordians. No, no, the Discordians are near their very shiny fridge. But um, you're right, I've given massive encouragement to them. Which they deserve. <laughs> Which yeah, no, they deserve. The future is whatever is the stupidest possible outcome that could happen. And I think history proves that. Well, I think that's, what's, uh, that's what Chris is on to. Like he's talking about stupidity as a positive rather than negative principle. Um, which is just like a gorgeous idea. Like, I didn't have that idea before I read this piece. Where it's like, no, 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 stupidity is not an absence of intelligence. It's like Origen's theory of evil. Like, Augustine of Hippo goes, no, 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 evil is merely the absence of good. And Origen is like, no, <laughs> evil is a positive pre-existent principle. And I think that Nate Silver rescues stupidity as that thing. It's like stupidity is not the mere absence of intelligence. It's its own thing and it's after us. Highly recommend the movie Burn After Reading, any Coen Brothers movie for that sense. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. I see a declension in the Coen Brothers movies. Like, I think that the, that's where the Coen brothers end up, but I think their sweet spot is the Big Lebowski because the Big Lebowski is not that. It's not nihilistic. It's not Discordian. It's Taoist. The argument is that the dude likes his rug too much and he becomes attached to his rug. And so when people take his rug, he seeks justice and terrible things befall him because seeking justice is wrong and attachment is wrong. And the universe only returns to its natural state when the dude stops trying to get his rug back. Um, now this, and this of course comes out of like the core tenet of this course, which is that Lao Tzu is right. That the big problem with capitalism is that we live in the first order where there, when there's discrepancy between what you want and what you have, you change what you have. Because in every other episteme, 
the correct answer is to change what you want. And the big Lebowski is about how you change what you want, not what you have. And that's why at the end of the film, Donnie's dead, the dude's car has been destroyed, his apartment has been destroyed, his answering machine has been destroyed, and the narrator goes, looks like things worked out pretty well for the dude and Walter. Because that's, that's the fundamental expectation adjustment. Like, if all that's happened to you is that your friend has died and your home has been destroyed and your vehicle has been destroyed, things have worked out pretty well. All right, I think that's the note to end on here. That's my personal yeah. economic theory. Uh, and I have to teach another course in 40 fucking minutes. I want to thank you guys for really coming out as a class <laughs> and supporting my return from whatever I was just in. Um, thanks a bunch. I'll see you on Thursday, okay? Absolutely. Thank you, everybody. Humans. See you in a few days.